We're preaching this summer through the book of Ecclesiastes, offering some unconventional wisdom in uh, tension with, in contradiction to maybe some of the common aphorisms that we hear in our culture. I have really come to appreciate the book of Ecclesiastes. I think I first learned to appreciate Ecclesiastes by, by um, offering funerals. Um, I often get called by McEwen Funeral Home when they have a family who doesn't have a minister. I've told you this before, but Amy and I can't figure out why somebody needs a minister to bury them when they didn't need a minister to, to help them live life. But I often get called when a family doesn't have a minister and needs a minister to bury them. And so you go to these services, you talk to these families, and you're trying to figure out what do you say as a minister to this person who wasn't very religious or not in the last years of their life, wasn't very religious. And I found some text in the book of Ecclesiastes about living this life, enjoying this life, finding the good in this life, even if you aren't particularly religious and God is in it. And I came to find some deep wisdom and some deep truth there. And I always say in those funerals, while I'm a religious person and would love to tell you why you ought to go to church every Sunday, I know everybody doesn't. And there's some wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes for the unconventionally religious. And I have come to appreciate the realism of the book of Ecclesiastes, even though he never says anything like, go to church, give your money, go to Sunday school, and God will love you. Just not there. There's a realism to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we find it as he speaks about marriage, about husband and wife, so let me read this text for you today as we consider that word we hear sometimes in our culture that marriages are made in heaven. Go, eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has long ago approved what you do. Now the Hebrew text is interesting here. It might be translated long ago God approved what you do, or maybe God now approves of what you're doing. However you hear it, there is no need to interpret this text as predeterminism, you know, that God has long ago set our actions for us. We should hear this as an affirmation that the things that bring enjoyment are from God. Enjoy your bread and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has long ago approved all the good things. Let your garments always be white. Do not let oil, oil be lacking from your head. These were ancient symbols of celebration and affirmation. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. The Hebrew text is indefinite, with a woman whom you love, but the translation appropriately applies a definite article. Enjoy life with the wife or the spouse, we might say. Ecclesiastes consistently places action in the present, so this is not just a general affirmation of marriage or relationships, but a specific instruction to enjoy this specific life you've been given with whatever specific person you have chosen to spend it with. In his commentary on the text, Sibley Towner notes, the teacher's analysis of how joy and morality intersect might not have been the same as those of today's Jews and Christians. The point here is not the exact arrangement within which a man and woman find happiness, but rather the importance of the ability to love amid the fleeting absurdity of life. 
Find life and find enjoyment in this life you have been given with your specific relationships. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that are given you under the sun. There it is, that vain life. You know, try to enjoy life in this vain life because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. There's an interesting discussion if you read the commentaries about the word Sheol, which is the place of the dead, and the developing theology of afterlife, resurrection of the righteous, even within Judaism. You begin to hear hints of resurrection of, righteous, of the righteous even within Judaism, but the writer of Ecclesiastes seems here to assume the more traditional Jewish theology of the day that there is no resurrection, only death, annihilation, the end of existence when we die. So the message is consistent throughout Ecclesiastes, enjoy this life, there is nothing else. Enjoy this life and you will find God in it. You have heard the ancient story. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. I started getting to know Rich Hodges a couple years ago, and he's gonna come and play the guitar for us today. Rich is a web developer with Apollo Valves. Um, I didn't know till just recently that Rich is a guitar player, and I didn't know till this morning that he's a good guitar player. He is the significant other of our Sharon Miles, and we're delighted to have Rich this morning. So enjoy this music and uh, let it be part of our meditation and our worship as Rich plays.
Thank you, Rich. I could listen to that for a long, long time. I had some recent conversation with a friend who was raised a Southern Baptist preacher's kid, just like I was. It was a good raising that we share, filled with joy and hope and challenge, but also the kind of piety that has a tendency to turn in on itself if we're not careful about it. You see, if God is always with us, then God is also always watching us. In this conversation, my friend told me that several years ago, his sister went through a divorce and she confided in him that everything in that experience had been difficult for her. The loss of relationship, the end of dreams, the concern for her children, the expressed disappointment of parents, the judgment of in-laws, everything had been difficult, but none of the difficulties had been as hard to overcome as acknowledging her broken vows, her broken marriage vows. She had stood at an altar on the consecrated holy ground of a church sanctuary, and she had not only made promises to her intended, she had made promises in front of all of her beloved promises to God. Till death us do part. And those words would not leave her. She had failed. She had broken her promise. She had failed her spouse, her children, her parents. She had failed God. At least that's how it felt to her. And though she was working her way through the process, the forgiveness, the mending of relationships, the redreaming of hopes, she was having a hard time with the promise she had broken to God. Isn't that sad that in that moment, when she was wounded by the loss of so much in her life, the change to so many relationships, that the vows a woman made standing in the church she loved, promises to the God she loved, that it was actually God or her understanding of God that was keeping her from the healing she most needed. Isn't that sad? God is love. God is healing and wholeness and acceptance and forgiveness and a future of hope. But a young woman this daughter of the church could not move on in her journey of healing because of what she had learned about God and about marriage, if only in what was implied by the language we use in church. Till death us do part. She couldn't get over those words. She had broken a promise for life. She had failed. I've thought so much about those words since that conversation with my friend. The pressure that is implied, the anxiety we heap on, suggesting that all good marriages, all successful marriages, all godly marriages last a lifetime. Should we change those words in the wedding liturgy? That vow expresses an ideal should it instead speak more of what is real? I've wondered about that. And I wrote about this a couple years ago in one of my posts in Baptist News Global. 
That was a piece that received a good deal of response. I said, we speak of failed marriages, and we imply in that language that the participants are also, also somehow flawed. But I said, you know, when a person dies, we don't say, well, she failed. Or he had a pretty good run, but he failed. No, we don't say that at all. We gather to celebrate and to give thanks for the life that was lived, for all the good that had been experienced, whether in 20 years or five times that. We tell the stories. We laugh and cry together. We give thanks to God for, for all that was good while it lasted. We celebrate life. And then we offer blessing for the new good that will come. Even though we know that nothing will be the same without her, though we will never get over losing him, nothing will be the same, everything will be different, but it's not failure, it's just life. In all its peculiarity and uncertainty and difficulty, death is part of life. You know, they say all good things must come to an end. It's sad, and it's true. So why don't we say that of marriages when they end? No one failed, or we need not just imply that blanket guilt by the language that we use. Marriages sometimes just run their course in ways that no one could have predicted. Like our bodies, some come to an end before others do, but failed? I think not. It happens because of the language we use. We say that marriage is a gift of God, a holy estate. We call it a divine ordinance. We hail sacred marriage we say marriage is made in heaven, and I guess because heaven is forever and because love never fails, then marriage should be till death us do part. Anything less is unsuccessful, unacceptable, ungodly. We mean well. I think we really do mean well, and I understand that the church has good intentions and desires but like so much else that we say in our culture, especially maybe in our religious culture, there are unintended consequences of our words. Even with the best of intentions, we may be doing more harm than good. Now to be sure, there may be nothing better than a good marriage. It is of God. I have no doubt of that. Of course, people need not be married in order to achieve their best, to fulfill what we believe is God's calling for the world. Some choose a single life. Others hope for a relationship that doesn't come. We need not suggest there is something implicitly wrong with people who don't get hitched. I'm not going to ask you to stand today if you've, been 50, if you've been married 50 years. They do that in some churches. I'm not going to give a prize today to the youngest of the newlyweds among us. None of that stuff, please. But when it happens, there may be nothing better. 
Amy and I are getting ready to celebrate 35 years together, and I don't mind telling you that I would be a lost ball in the high weeds without that girl, you know. I cannot imagine life any other way. I cannot imagine. Marriage may hold all that God hopes for the wor- world, excuse me, packaged in one concise and particular experience Though let it be said that the good that can be known in marriage can also be known through other experiences and other relationships. Amy and I say something like this in every wedding we conduct, so I want to just read for you my opening remarks from the homily Amy and I gave in the last wedding ceremony we officiated, which was the delightful wedding of Darren Gant and Katie Fine. I hope it's okay with them that I share this. Sometimes, I said, we paint marriage as if it's all heaven, a gift from God, a holy estate, a divine ordinance, sacred marriage. We've used all those words already in this wedding ceremony, and it is all of that. But how? What does sacred really mean? The strange biblical book of Ecclesiastes is part of the Bible's wisdom literature, but there is no conventional wisdom there, no easy platitudes or trite truisms. The writer is cynical about life, and he doesn't offer any sweet sentimentality about marriage either. Marriage is part of the same gritty reality as the rest of this life. Ecclesiastes says life is hard, And then you die. And marriage is not some escape from that. Marriage is situated right in the midst of life's toil and trouble. And the secret is not to be found in some heavenly bliss, but right here in the hard knocks of real life. Go, eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart. Enjoy life with the partner you love all the days of your vain life. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with your might, for you are going to die. Enjoy this hard life as best you can, and you will find God right here, right now, on earth, in the good times and the bad. That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. In that understanding, marriage is sacred precisely because you have to work so hard, you have to dig so deeply that we finally realize being human is as spiritual as it gets. Being human is as spiritual as it gets. The Bible says the two shall become one flesh because there is nothing that puts us so firmly in touch with spirituality as the touch of another human being. If marriage is not of God, two ordinary people sharing life and finding love, then nothing is. As the poet Ida Fassel said it, I fantasized two gloriously in love people on a Harlequin cover. Marriage was a list of beforehand things, dress, invitations, cake, flowers, everything ticking off perfectly. Then I made it to the real thing, both of us bending against the wind that gave my wedding veil no peace, holding hard to each other. 
At that point in every wedding ceremony, we say to every couple who stands there before us, looking them in the eye, speaking with all the joy and all the truth we can muster, welcome to the real thing. Welcome to the real thing. It's a good reminder for a married couple. What you're embarking upon here is a grand thing, and it's about as hard as it gets. Sharing life, mutual love, knowing and being known, the humility of such a depth of relationship, celebration, suffering, tears, laughter, together. It's an equally good reminder if you're not standing at an altar or never will or find your relationship in other ways, life in this world, the world of hard knocks, the life we learn by doing it, the give and the take of relationships are the realest thing in the world. And in the grist of working together, sharing together, struggling together, of being right and being wrong, of forgiving and accepting forgiveness, in the grind of real life, the real world with all its ups and downs, the good and the bad, the bitter and the sweet, there we find God. Right here. Not over there somewhere. Right now. Not in some imagined future. In this world, not just in the next. This world is the realest thing there is. So standing in front of this altar today... Let me remind you all, welcome to the real thing. Live this life well as long as you can make it last, and you will find God in it. May it be so. Amen.